I'm Deborah J. Saunders, and this is Covering Trump. What was it like to cover President Donald Trump? Hi, I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. In Covering Trump, I'll bring you inside the Trump White House. Please note, I was not one of those stars you'd see in the front two rows of the briefing room. I was in the back of the room, or standing in the aisle before I got a seat. Eventually, I was also there in the Oval Office, the Rose Garden, on Air Force One. For the tweets, the rants, the gotcha questions, and charges of fake news. I was on TV during a really wide shot. Welcome to Trump World, Episode 1. My mission is to share the logistics of the drama, the daily grind, and the occasional magic of covering the 45th president from the back of the pack. In excruciating detail, I'll walk through one reporter's battle for access, challenges as a print pooler, and mastery of the beat's most utilized skill, waiting. One thing I've learned as I put this podcast together, covering the Trump White House feels much better in the rearview mirror. Covering Trump, Episode 1. Welcome to Trump World. There have been countless books written about the Trump White House, insider accounts of palace intrigues based on whichever self-serving leaker had the ear of a well-known author, and rushed hardcovers written by newly exiting staffers looking to cash in and preserve what's left of their ravaged reputations. You won't get that here. This podcast is not about what one chief of staff said about an administration rival or detailed accounts of heated arguments between Donald Trump and key aides in the West Wing. It's about what it was like to cover the Trump White House. It's an explainer about the conventions of the White House press corps, the posturing you see and don't see, the logistics of covering a president, the daily grind, and the occasional magic. You'll learn about what it was like to be there and what goes into covering the world's biggest story for four years. I'll guide you through the 49-seat briefing room, the Oval Office, the Rose Garden, and travel on Air Force One, as well as overseas trips, riding in motorcades, and covering Marine One arrivals and departures. I'll explain how thousands of journalists can travel to an international summit but only a handful actually see the president and other world leaders with their own eyeballs. I'll take you beyond the East Room gatherings in Pebble Beach, the row of tent-covered TV cameras on the North Lawn, where you see correspondents deliver the news of the day. I was one of those folks you used to see walking in the background, heading out or on my way to the cramped but precious workspace, scrunched into what used to be the White House swimming pool. And, of course, the daily briefings. I was there. As a regional reporter, I usually was in the back of the room where the experience was completely different than it was for the stars in the front two rows. It's a lot harder to get called on in the cheap seats. In the back, the questions often were less showy, less process-oriented, and less inside baseball. Often, but not always. I was there for the staff firings on Twitter and the record turnover of four chiefs of staff four press secretaries, and four national security advisors in as many years. I was there when Anthony Scaramucci, Trump's newly minted communications director, talked to reporters. He lasted some 10 days on the job. Or was it 11? 
I was there for Trump's first White House press conference in February 2017, when he claimed his administration was operating like a fine-tuned machine. This administration is running like a fine-tuned machine. It wasn't. The contentious presser offered 77 minutes of Trump's well-aired grievances. He used the phrase fake news 11 times. I was in the airport when Trump landed in Riyadh for his first foreign trip as a world leader. I was there in Brussels when Trump failed to recognize NATO's Article 5, the one-for-all and all-for-one clause that makes NATO a powerful check on Russian ambition. That's the NATO confab, where Trump famously manhandled Montenegro's prime minister so he could get a front-center spot in group photos. I was there for Trump's last foreign trip in London, December 2019. Social media wags had mocked Trump for hogging the microphone during pool sprays with other world leaders. What's a pool spray? Be patient. I'll tell you all about them. Smarting at the criticism, Trump skipped out of London town without presiding over a scheduled press conference. Just to show us he could. I was there in Singapore when Trump met North Korean strongman Kim Jong-un and gushed about their great relationship. He even made a video to close the summit, giving the high-stakes diplomatic engagement the air of a buddy movie. I was there when Trump introduced America to his White House coronavirus task force, as doctors Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks told the country how to live in a pandemic world. I was there when the president flouted convention and skirted federal law when he delivered his GOP nomination acceptance speech from the White House South Lawn. Trump said he used the People's House to stage the campaign event because of COVID. I interviewed Trump in a packed and closed rally near Las Vegas during the height of COVID. He made sure I wore a mask. Aren't you concerned about getting COVID, though, in a closed No, I'm not concerned. I'm more concerned about how close you are. During the first debate between Trump and now President Joe Biden, Biden mentioned the exchange. One of the last big rallies he had, and a reporter came up to him to ask him a question. He said, no, 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 stand back. Put on your mask. Put on a mask. Have you been tested? I'm way, I'm way far away from those other people. That's what he said. I can't. I'm going to be okay. He's not worried about you. Biden got some of the details wrong, which was par for the course, but he nailed the dynamic. Weeks later, we learned that Trump had come down with COVID. I was there when Trump climbed the winding South Portico stairs on his return from Walter Reed Military Hospital after he was treated and hospitalized with the coronavirus. I skipped the Rose Garden ceremony at which Trump introduced Amy Coney Barrett, his third pick for the Supreme Court. The event turned out to be a COVID super spreader. I had decided to watch it from home. I just had a bad feeling about it. I shivered with my ink-stained brethren in the South Lawn when Trump left the White House. I rode in motorcades. I was also there in the quiet of the night when a silent leader emerged from Marine One and walked to the East Wing residence after visiting troops in Iraq. He never took questions at night because he did not think the lighting was flattering. I became one of those people whose behavior I used to think of as rude and too inside. I shouted questions at the President of the United States in the Oval Office and stalked the North Driveway where administration officials could be pressed for further information. 
I knew that my soul was damned on the day I waylaid a high-profile advisor to Trump during a security lockdown that had Secret Service agents armed with what looked like AK-47s on the North Lawn yelling at us to go inside so we wouldn't get in their way or get shot by an intruder. Kellyanne Conway was willing to chat for a few minutes, so I didn't let the fact that she was a mother of four stop me. I have a theory about life. If you live long enough, you end up doing many of the things you once told yourself you would never, ever do. That's because you find out there's a reason other people do them. In a way, I was the accidental White House correspondent. I was 62 years old when I started on the job. I'd been a columnist for nearly 30 years, and I'd worked as an editorial writer. Before the White House gig, I was an opinion writer with a reputation for producing columns heavy on reporting. This, however, was my first gig as a straight reporter, which made me the oldest cub reporter in the White House press corps. Columnist, reporter, what's the difference? Forget the whole opinion aspect of column writing. There was a freedom to the job that can't be matched. I pretty much picked my topics, writing three columns a week I had control over when and how I worked. Here's another example of the reporter-columnist divide. In 2002, when I was a columnist, I once watched a scrum of reporters following businessman Bill Simon, then a GOP candidate for California governor, in the pouring rain. I was a columnist, so I stayed dry and let others get wet so they could hear what he had to say. It seemed clear to me that the Republican candidate was enjoying getting the press corps sopping wet, and if I recall, giving them nothing by way of information for it. Since I wasn't going to file until later, I watched the reporters in the rain from a dry spot, securing the knowledge I simply could quote what my colleagues reported without attribution because more than two reporters would have it. That all ended when I signed up to cover the White House for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. As a columnist, I could stay dry. As a reporter, I could get drenched. I did get drenched. I got baked, too. The Rose Garden was beautiful on a nice spring day, but also a bit like sitting on tin foil for two hours. I developed a sun allergy and stashed wide-brimmed hats and sunscreen on the premises. Covering the White House could be physically grueling. One day you'd be pooling and running up marble stairways with a laptop, notepad, and phone. Other days there'd be long waits standing to get into the Rose Garden and time trolling for administration officials walking the West Wing driveway. Gentile opining was over. I had to scramble to get scraps of news early, write about whatever stories flew over the radar, show up an hour early for meetings I expected to start at least an hour late, and go to bed with my phone so I wouldn't miss any Trump tweets or any late-night announcements for what the next day might hold. I had become a beat reporter for the craziest beat in the world. If I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question, Mr. President, if I may, if I may ask Peter, one other ahead. question, are you worried? That's enough. That's Mr. enough. Mr. President, I, that's well, enough. I was ask one other, the, the first time I, I saw Donald to... Trump in person was at a California Republican Party convention south of San Francisco in April 2016. To avoid a crush of protesters trying to keep him out, Trump had to duck under a fence that separated a freeway from the airport hotel where he would address his diehard base. It was an ironic entrance, the Republican New Yorker crawling through a fence after he moved to the head of the pack by bashing illegal border crossers from Mexico. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, 
they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. I didn't think he had a chance of winning the Republican primary or the general election. He never really run a concerted campaign for office. He said things I'd never heard a candidate say. He talked in childish and brutish terms. Many Republican women were especially turned off by his style. In a suggestion that President Barack Obama was not born in the United States, it wasn't true. It somehow it boosted his numbers. I didn't think he was a conservative. In the past three decades, Trump had changed his party registration repeatedly, from Republican to Independence Party to Democrat to Republican to decline to state and Republican again. In 2015, during a personal visit to New York, I treated myself to a swift tour of the Trump Tower lobby where Melania and the Donald had taken the escalator down ahead of his announcement of his candidacy. I took photos of Trump ties and cackled at the notion that this big mouth bore would ever win the GOP primary, not to mention the highest office in the land. That was my view, but the California Republican Party crowd loved him. His supporters swaggered into the Burlingame Hyatt Regency Banquet Hall as if they owned the place, I wrote at the time. Maybe they know something I don't. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back in a flash with more fake news. The Biden administration is constantly finding new ways to fail and then blaming others for it, except when it is intentionally failing on issues like the border and energy policy. Well, we're not going to let them get away with that. I'm Greg Columbus. Join Jim Garrity of National Review and me each weekday for the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'll give you the good, bad, and crazy news of the day and lots of laughs, too. Find us right here on the Ricochet Audio Network at ricochet.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The first time I saw President-elect Donald Trump was in January 2017 at his first post-election press conference held at, where else, Trump Tower. The event occurred as BuzzFeed News posted the 35-page dossier that suggested Trump was vulnerable to Kremlin blackmail and, quote, the Russian regime has been cultivating, supporting, and assisting Trump for at least five years, close quote. Trump called the story fake news, and he was right. That nonsense that was released by maybe the intelligence agencies, who knows, but maybe the intelligence agencies, which would be a tremendous blot on their record if they in fact did that, a tremendous blot, because a thing like that should have never been written, it should never been had, and it should certainly never have been released. I remember reading the document for the first time while in New York for the presser. It didn't pass a smell test. Until that BuzzFeed piece, major news organizations to which the story had been shopped refused to run with it. They couldn't corroborate the bogus claims. There was no there there. And yet, once the dossier had been made public, the press corps began to act as if there must really be something to a story Big Shot editors had rejected. The January 11 briefing held at Trump Tower was Trump's first back and forth with the press since he won in November. It was after then-FBI Director James Comey poisoned the well. It might have been different. In the wee hours of November 9, after the race was declared for the upstart Republican, Trump was glowing. He put aside the rancor he exhibited on the campaign trail as he graciously saluted Hillary Clinton for working very, very hard. And he thanked her for her service to America. 
he called on the nation to come together as one united people. Hillary has worked very long and very hard over a long period of time, and we owe her a major debt of gratitude for her service to our country. I mean that very sincerely. Now it's time for America to bind the wounds of division, have to get together. To all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one united people. In the flush of victory, Trump pledged to work with critics as well as his base. The dossier story put an end to what should have been a victor's honeymoon. I believe that Comey's decision to end his first meeting with Trump, held on January 6, 2017, by telling him about the phony document, signaled to Trump that the intelligence community was willing to destroy the president-elect by any means available, legitimate or otherwise. The fact that the story ran in BuzzFeed after the Comey sit-down cemented Trump's distrust of national security swells, whom Trump and his inner circle referred to as the deep state. So what did I think of Trump? Let me put it this way. In 2016, I voted for Libertarian candidate Gary Johnson, the former governor of New Mexico. In 2020, I voted for Donald Trump. I voted for Gary Johnson because I was adamantly opposed to Trump, didn't think he was a conservative, resented his racist and sexist slurs, and thought he would be bad for the country. I couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm a Republican. So I voted for Johnson, a genuinely good human being. I voted for Trump in 2020 because, to my surprise, he was a good president, despite his big mouth and bullying. His U.S. Supreme Court picks prevented the country's top court from diving into political activism. He had the right approach to the coronavirus, shutting down the country for a brief period, then prodded the public to get back to work. When he first said he'd push to develop and produce vaccines within a year, experts scoffed. But he was right, and Big Pharma got it done. He established a U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, which critics warned would turn the Middle East into a powder keg. That didn't happen. Joe Biden is keeping the embassy, thank you very much. Trump didn't start a war. His insistence on enforcing federal immigration laws was refreshing, and contrary to the warnings of media scolds, he enjoyed a 10-point bump in support among Hispanic voters, according to Pew Research. The economy prospered under his policies, and income inequality narrowed slightly during his term. He advocated for and signed needed criminal justice reform and still maintained his law and order credibility. I also voted for Trump because, if he was reelected, I honestly could tell his staff I voted for him, and that could mean more access. Despite all those amazing accomplishments, it wasn't an easy choice to make. To my disappointment, Trump's character did not improve as he faced the awesome responsibilities that go with the portfolio. In the beginning, I thought maybe Trump would grow into the office, as others had done, but that never happened. The office didn't change Trump, he changed the presidency. As I write this, Joe Biden has finished a troubling first year marred by inflation and dysfunction. Biden was supposed to be the seasoned political veteran who would bring professionalism back to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. To the contrary, he morphed into a progressive version of Donald Trump, not working across the aisle, instead working as an enforcer bent on punishing members of his own party who defied him. 
I am not the only person who thinks the country might have been better off if Trump had won in 2020. But then he lost, and he was the sorest loser in U.S. history. So thank you, Donald Trump, for the January 6th Capitol riots. Thanks for joining me for the first episode of Covering Trump. Next up, the battle for access. The long slog to stand out in the briefing room, sit down in my own seat, and not screw up while pooling in the Oval Office. It's a story of how I became the accidental White House correspondent. My first question to Sean Spicer made international news. Not necessarily in a good way. I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent and present fellow at the Discovery Institute. This podcast was produced by Beowulf Rockland and Rosabelle Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. I want to thank the Las Vegas Review-Journal and C-SPAN for material cited in this podcast.